Okay, you guys, this is the LIC reading series, and I'm so happy you're here because today's our birthday. Hi, this is Catherine Lasota, host of LIC Reading Series. In this episode, you're going to hear the readings from our April 10, 2018 event, when we celebrated the three-year anniversary of LIC Reading Series, a monthly event that takes place in the Carriage House of LIC Bar in Long Island City, Queens. For our three-year birthday, we had the writers Simeon Marcellus, Cunnan Jones, and Lynn Tillman. You're going to hear their readings from their work in this episode and in the next episode, the panel discussion from April 10th, 2018. One thing we do at LSC Reading Series is ask each of our writers to share a brief Queen's anecdote before they read from their work. So you're going to hear that in this episode as well. Now let's jump on into the episode and start off with Simeon Marcellus in the celebration of our three-year anniversary. Simeon Marcellus was born in 1990 and graduated from the University of Vermont in 2013. Baby! He's lived in New York, New Hampshire, and New Orleans. As Lies to Grin is his first book. What? It's available here from Astoria Bookshop, if you so desire. Um, I will tell you that Elias Degrin was on the shortlist for the 2017 Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. And yes, thank you. Yes, applause. And Publishers Weekly says that as um, in As Lie is to Grin, Marcellus incisively comments on a wide range of ideas from authenticity to architecture. And also, I will add also things that do not start with A. <laughs> So, Simeon, will you please kick us off here with a Queen's anecdote and a reading up at the mic? Let's give it up. Okay, thank you. Which one? Anyone? First, where am I? Where am I? Here I am. Here. Oh, right here, right here. First, I just want to say hello. I'm really excited to be here. My book tour is over, so this was completely uh, my choice, you know? It was my choice to be here. And I'm gonna read from a different section. Um, but the question, the first question that I have to answer, I saw it on my sheet and I was mortified because my grandparents are from Brooklyn and if you're from New York, you know that if you're from a borough, you don't really, so I've never been to Queens, actually. <laughs> I've like stopped through. I've been to LaGuardia, of course. But, um, so I really didn't have anything. But <clears throat> luckily, I teach in Newark. And I have a student who is from Queens. And so I asked Madison to tell me about Queens so I could share it with you. And she told me that she's from Middle Village. And she, yeah, shout out to Madison. Yes, yes, she'll appreciate it. And she wanted you to know that Middle Village is very segregated in terms of class. She also wanted you to know that Queens is the best borough. So there you go. <laughs> Cake and eating it. Uh, it's double pun. Um, I will be reading, unlike I've read before, I usually only read from the book, but I'm also going to be reading from the book inside of the book this time. Um, what is important to know 
is that the story is about a writer who goes to the University of Vermont and they have abandoned a novel that they were attempting to write. And so the first part I will read from is from chapter one of that novel that was abandoned. And then the second stuff I will read will be David's experience at the University of Vermont. And I hope you enjoy it. And I will probably continue to speak at this cadence. <laughs> this is also a part of the performance. So I hope you're also enjoying this. <laughs> This is actually my road copy of As Lies to Grin. So I've taken this thing all over America and the pages are stuck together. But I have found chapter one. <laughs> the night was thick. From the porch light, I could make out a middle-aged couple through the gate. Worry in the wife's soul hung over each slight movement from the way she smiled timidly to the way she clenched and let go of her husband's hand. I invited them into the living room where my mother sat staring through the back window. As we approached, her eyes remained transfixed on some point beyond the glass. She said, you have not been truthful with each other, turning to face them. How did you know? To which my mother replied, we know these things, as she turned back to the window. Every slight movement was an act she performed until the end of each session, when Doris opened the garage to a patch of flowers, carnations, catchfly, lilies, and scarlet sage. How do they grow without light, her patients would ask. That is the miracle, she would say. I go out to the forest by the highway and I find the strongest wildflowers. The plants live in the garage during the winter with insufficient light. In truth, she packed boxes of flowers in green cartons from the florist and arranged them before we were to receive her patients. Doris always referenced this little patch of meadow in this little patch of wood where she supposedly spent most of her weekends digging up flowers that could grow strong anywhere. She told me, they usually don't believe it. That does not matter. The flowers give them hope in this country where there is none. September 1st, 2010. There was a copy of the school newspaper at the end of a long table in the student center, dated August 31st, 2010. I flipped the paper open and spilled some coffee on the page one article. It gave information about my class, 14 countries, 40 states, 10% Alana, Asian American, Latino, African American, Native American, and multiracial, and made me feel part of some experiment that was in its beginning stages. I passed the article about the ROTC fitness test results and realized that Bonnie's efforts to ban the Army program had been temporarily effective. On the next page, there was an article entitled, 
SGA president pushes for transparent registration, book prices and syllabuses to be made available earlier. September 8th, 2010. Once outside of my dorm, I stared at the collection of buildings called Redstone Campus. They seemed to have been built without regard for previous style. I logged into www.uvm.edu backslash swung dash campus backslash tour backslash archhistory.html and browsed a page that revealed the campus building's architectural firms, periods, and dates of erection. Passing Southwick Music Hall, I learned that a firm from New York, McKim, Mead, and White, had fashioned it in the colonial revival style 1934, not the extension 1975 that was influenced by brutalism. <laughs> I had come across the name of the firm last year, and this seemed some sign to continue searching but as I scrolled through all of the dates and styles hastily, I was struck with the guilt of living upon land that was stolen and constructed on in the style of other places so far away. October 18th, 2010. I lay in bed and gazed out the window. The earth felt as if it were waiting, for what I did not know. There were two students walking in different directions next to the green. They smiled at each other. I could not hear their conversation, but their hand movements seemed to indicate that they would meet again later. I got out of bed for the first time all day. On the steps of the library, there was a man with sunglasses on, though it was dark. I am the reckoning, he said. I am the Lord of light, and through me, all things are made small. He drank from the cup and projected again. I am the Lord of change. Most students walked by him. A few listened. They chuckled with their friends. I am the Lord, and before me, all things are infinitesimal. I faced the statue that resembled a dead and mutilated tree and walked on, trying not to be taken in by his madness. Thank you. Let's give it up one more time for Simeon. Thank you so much for starting us off and for um, learning that Queens is the best borough. <laughs> it's good information to realize. Working in Queens alphabetical order, we're going to move on to Cunning Jones. Got it right. Got it right. 
I'm sorry, guys. I didn't know how to pronounce his name until I met him because I'm not Welsh. <laughs> and I'm ignorant in many things. But now I know how to say Cunnan Joden's name, and I'm glad because he's a really good writer. All right. Oh, no, I didn't ask you how to pronounce where you were born. <laughs> you want me to give it a go? You want me to give it a go? All right. Cunnan Jones was, you're not even born there, you're born near there. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's even worse. All right. All right. Thank you for giving me the easy one. Cunnan Jones was born near Aberreron? I went a bunny rabbit. Okay. On the west coast of Wales in 1975. He is the author of five novels. The Long Dry, Everything I Found on the Beach, Bird, Blood, Snow, The Dig, and Cove, which is available over here for sale from a story bookshop. His work has been published in more than 20 countries, and his short stories have appeared in publications including Granta and the New Yorker. He's won a Betty Trask Award, a Gerwood Fiction Prize, and the Wales Book of the Year Fiction Prize, and the 2017 BBC National Short Story Award. He's been long listed for the Kirkus Prize, the Warwick Prize, and the European Literature Prize. And shortlisted for the Sunday Times EFG Private Bank Short Story Award. And he has like an almost three-month-old child, which is like the biggest thing ever, and you're here and you're awake. So we're just going to, whatever you do, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> Um, the Guardian calls Cove an arresting short novel by a highly accomplished writer, and The Spectator says, immensities happen in this slim book. So let's give it up for Cutta Jones. I'm actually pretty tall for a Welshman. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. And I've got a better excuse for never having been to Queen's before than Simeon, I think. But, um, but this is my second experience of Queen's today, actually. Today? Because uh, earlier today I was on the 64th floor of the One World Trade Center. And they said, that's Queen's over there. <laughs> I was like, excellent. I now have something to say about Queen's. But what, what really struck me is just in that one view of Queen's, that there are nearly as many people living here as there are in my whole country. Yes. I think there's probably two and a half million people in Queens and there's three million people in Wales. So that's, you know, <laughs> it's quite a thing. And we <laughs> So uh, Cove is a very slim novel. It's only 11 and a half thousand words, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. So reading it, I have to be incredibly careful that I don't simply read it. Um, <laughs> it's one of the main reasons it's short is because it's a story about a man who goes out on a kayak and is hit by lightning. <laughs> now, where do you go with that? Uh, and it, it is not a comedy, however, so everyone be very serious. It's, um, it's, it's better to read it. I'm going to jump about a bit. Um, he is holding his hands in the water, rubbing the blood from them when the hairs on his arms stand up. They sway briefly, like seaweed in the current, then lie down again. He looks up, a strange ruffle come across the surface. The birds had lifted suddenly and gone away, as if there were some signal. They are flecks now, a hiatus disappearing against the light off the sea. 
He is far enough out for the land to have paled in view. The first lightning strikes out somewhere past the horizon. At first he thinks it's some sudden glint. The thunder happens moments later and he feels sick in his guts. A metallic sheen comes to the water, like cutlery, like metal much touched. The white clouds glow, a sort of leaden at the edge. There is enough delay, he thinks, a delay and sees the rain as a thick dark band moving in, it starts to paddle. Then there is a wire of electric brightness, a rumble that seems to echo off the surface of the water. He counts automatically, assesses the distance to land, another throb of light, and the coast still a thin wood-coloured line. The wind picks up, cold air moving in front of the storm, and then there is a basal roll, the sound of a great weight landing, a slow tearing in the sky. When it hits him, there is a bright white light. His mouth is crusted with salt. He does not know where he is. There is a pyroclast of fine dried ash across his skin. When he comes to, the strongest thing he feels is the tingling in his hands. It feels as if they are distant things, strange ringing bells. He finds out anew he cannot move his arms. He moves because he coughs, a cough made of glass. It hurt to breathe because his whole body hurt as if he had suffered a massive fall. He blinked and struggled to raise himself a little more, the kayak shifting below him, the world slipping, rocking. He felt the briefest flicker in his right arm, a wave of something, and it spasmed and smashed unfeelingly against the inside of the boat and went dead again, fell now against his side, a fish flicking after suffocating. There was a ringing in his ears, a high insecty whine. He felt drug, his head pumped full with something. He let the light in bit by bit as if sipping it with his eye, raised his head and saw the water. For a moment he thought he was in some way blind, but then he understood. There was just the water. There was nothing else to see. He felt a confusion, a kind of throb in his head. There was a complete horizon, a horizon everywhere around and no point of it seemed closer than another. It brought claustrophobia. He did not know if he was moving, if he was travelling, he could not tell in which direction, if he was. He felt only the rock, the sway, the dip and wallow of the boat. It is not from real sleep the noise brings him, but from a strange, shallow place. The sleep we have when we travel. It is cold and it is pitch black. Blacker when he opens his eyes. Blacker than it was when they were closed. A stunning nothingness. He is hardly conscious, and he hears the child's voice, hears the clear, troubling cry of a child. This is not real, he thinks. He feels his heart slow, his breathing flaccid. There is the cry again, the cold, a complete tiredness, a calm, like an acceptance of drowning. I can go now, he thinks. I've done my best. He feels passive towards it. He's so cold that if there was any challenge to him, he would gently yield, let it happen. Cold, he thinks, it's okay. A thought of holding someone's hand slip away. The football rattle of a magpie by the boat, the sound of splashes in the dark, a kind of kazoo sound, 
A spray of water covers him, pattering the plastic blanket, falls on him warmer than his skin, and he opens his eyes, sees the green light, the perfect shape of dolphins playing around the boat. It is a spell. They are a quick shape, a liquid in their own right, through the black water, bright spirits under him. Somewhere he feels his ticking heart, an engine trying to start. Was he nearly gone? Was he gone? The child's cry close by now of the dolphin calf, and the mother breaks the water, a luminous green form, leaving a figure of itself in the air, bright water dropping, a glow, crashing colour landing back into the water. The calf sounded so human, a baby in an upstairs room. Stay alive, he thinks. You have to stay alive. Thank you. Um, we are going to move on now to Lynn Tillman. <laughs> Lynn, who finds her own name hilarious, <clears throat> is a novelist, short story writer, and cultural critic. Her novels are Haunted Houses, Motion Sickness, Cast in Doubt, No Lease on Life, which was a finalist for the national... Oh, I'm sorry. It was. It was a. You've done this a few times. The finalist thing for the National Book Critic. No. No. Twice. Twi I mean. Once in novel. Once in novel and once in yeah. for the essay collection. Yeah. yeah. I. Both times. <laughs> All right. I won't mention it then. No, I won't mention it. Expunge it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> also, I'm using the word few to mean two because I don't know the alphabet or numbers. All right, and American Genius, a comedy. Her nonfiction books include The Velvet Years, War Warhol's Factory, 1965 to 67, with photographs by Stephen Shore, Bookstore, The Life and Times of Jeanette Watson, and Books and Company, and What Would Lynn Tillman Do? And I'm not going to tell you what that was a finalist for. <laughs> it was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award in Criticism. Her most recent short story collections are Someday This Will Be Funny and The Complete Madam Realism. <laughs> you love that title. It's a good title, right? Someday this, today this is funny. All right. Uh, she's the recipient of a Guggenheim Foundation Fellowship and an Andy Warhol Creative Capital Arts Writing Fellowship. She's professor and writer in residence in the Department of English at the University of Albany and teaches at the School of Visual Arts Art Criticism and Writing MFA program in New York. She lives in Manhattan with bass player David Hofstra. She came all the way to Queens, though. <laughs> Um, Stephen Sparks says that Lynn Tillman's first novel in a dozen years, which is true, guys, first novel in a dozen years, Men in Apparitions, which is here. Thank you for the whistle. It is noted and worthy. Uh, it crackles with pent-up energy, brimming with her trademark wit and vibrancy. And Michael Friedman in The New Republic writes, it's staggering to watch Tillman so precisely dissect Zeke, the protagonist, dissect Zeke's Gen X masculinity and its contradictions. I know you can't wait to hear from Lynn Tillman. Let's give it up for her. Sorry. I have a question for you. You. Yeah. What is a, what is a Queen's accent? Is this a joke? No. I mean, maybe it is. Maybe it is. And, I don't. I don't know what a is queen's there, accent is. There is there a queen's accent? Well, is, you would say, but you say yes because there are so many different languages spoken here. What does that mean? Annie has a queen's accent. Do you know Annie Lynn? Which Annie? Um, 
the Annie that Terry knows. <laughs> no, but could you have her call me and leave a message? <laughs> it's sort of like a Brooklyn accent. Okay, I was curious. Okay, so um, I, my, I grew up uh, in Woodmere, Long Island, Nassau County. Your father? I grew up in Cedarhurst. In Cedarhurst, okay. One of the five towns. Dubious distinction that that is. Um, and um, my feelings about Queens have to do with my going to New York City, into Manhattan. So leaving the suburbs, my father would, would get into his car and we would drive along Queens Boulevard and over the 59th Street Bridge and during that ride, I would see the Manhattan skyline. And then I knew freedom. So Queens for me is the gateway to freedom. How about that? <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna just read a few minutes from Men and Apparitions. It's an odd book to read from. It is an odd book, just generally so. Uh, but I'll read from the beginning. Self-narration or wildness of origin myths. Is this a little high? Yeah, just, just a little bit down. It's right at the end of my nose. Just, sorry. Yeah, that's right, my own, my own gasping for air. Um, thank you. See, you shouldn't let me have a break, actually. <laughs> Uh, Self-narration or wildness of origin myths. The universe heaves with laughter, and I'm all about my lopsided self-defining tale. How I came to be me, not you. How I'm shaping me for you. The way my posse and other native informants do for me. How I'm shape-shifting. I'm telling you that I'm telling you. Myself is my field and habitually... I observe and write field notes. Ethnographer, study yourself. Ethnographer, heal yourself. There was a no time with timeouts a long time ago, way before now, space and time on a continuum, bend in relationship. And I imagine that soon I will, in some sense, return to the past whenever I want. Routine settles, creeps in. I've performed the same acts for 38 years, like eating breakfast. You were eating breakfast. You have been eating breakfast. You were conjugating breakfast ever since your mother set food before you. And now you're feeding yourself only if you shop for it. Or maybe you went back to the land to raise it, but not everything. You don't and can't raise everything. I was damn fortunate meals appeared regularly. I'm no ingrate. That was part of my home. You were spoon-fed, and it landed plop on the floor. Or you, the baby, threw it, bad boy. Throw a tantrum, make a mess. Soon you have to clean it up, break it, buddy. It's yours in pieces because you are responsible. And true, things go to pieces when not actually broken. Abstractions get broken. Ideas get broken. I've seen the best minds of my gen, me talking about the flawed life, totally. Going to sleep, that gets tired. Ha, the regularity. And boredom might cause my chronic insomnia. So it's cool when you don't know you're falling asleep, then you wake up and the TV is on. 
You open your eyes, weird, to dream becomes the best reason to sleep, especially if you do, I do, conscious dreaming, and get to choose. A dream becomes a podcast or a movie. Otherwise, nightmares pit REM sleep with terror. I listened to a podcast of an old TV news program and heard a Soviet and Russian historian, Stephen Cohen, argue with a total jerk. Completely exasperated by the fool, Cohen finally said, with all due respect, you don't know what you're talking about. I swallowed the moment like a hallucinogen. That's so fucking rare. It tears up Max Weber's cage. That's my goal, to tear it up, me especially. I don't get high anymore. Antidepressants keep me sort of level and don't combine well with recreational drugs. Living drug-free is a sort of high, except clarity can get ugly. My analyst suggests that I elongated my kidhood by, dele- by delaying leaving home. No big deal, really typical. I suffer from abulia, which my analyst says is an abnormal lack of ability to act or make decisions. I like the word. So I say to my analyst, Abulia, I'm another Hamlet. Look what happened to him. I dither, weigh both sides, make lists, advantages, disadvantages. Picture me in a frame, framed. My frame of reference is cultural anthropology. Clifford Geert says that doing doing ethnography is like trying to read in the sense of construct a reading of a manuscript. That culture is public because meaning is. I do ethnography by working with photographs, also with the human absorption in images, and with the many forms and senses of image, creating an image, loving an image, etc. My specialty family photographs. Images don't mean as words mean, though people and I apply words to them. Photographs can create images, but they are not images per se. They are things, a physical object. An image doesn't have to be based on a photograph. It is a mind picture, or an image is a picture in the mind. A photograph may inspire or foment an image or images. An image is a concoction, often manufactured, meant to create a way to be seen, viewed, understood. It can be airy-fairy a phantom, phantasm. Can an image built out of self-consciousness lie? I wear a brimless hat because it's cool. Does it tell a lie about me? I take a photograph. I don't take an image. Unless I'm a vampire. Ha ha. (laughs) Vampires don't look like the ones on TV. The living dead are regular people who suck you dry. A mind is not a brain, or a brain is to a mind what a photograph is to an image, and they can be conflated. Brains and minds, images and photographs, and sometimes I do it too. Domestic visuals also. I was totally conscious as a little kid of life passing, and when I saw a brilliant fall leaf hanging from a tree about to drop, Seeing it from a car window, I thought, I'll never see that leaf again, and felt sad, and I don't know why. At four years old, I felt such loss. 
In our family's albums, leaves were glued on pages, leaves were set under plastic, and maybe I experienced something like D.W. Winnicott's holding, far from consciousness. The ephemeral was transformed into a document that turned into a monument to memory and truth. There it was, mother as a girl. Samuel Beckett, all art is the same, an attempt to fill an empty space. I'd lost nothing, nothing I was aware of, only what everyone loses when the amniotic sac, sac bursts and you fetus drop, get pushed through a tight vaginal canal and thrust into unexpected environs. We didn't know, now always trying to fill the emptiness. I spend hours, weeks, months from my young life on with pictures absorbed in their mysteriousness, there yet not there, what is there? Ethnographic values. Ethnography focuses on actual people, real people in real situations. That's how I articulated it to myself. I wouldn't just be rocking in my own head, limited, but my mind could spread out. No escape from patterns and systems, no exits, nothing, and no one resides outside a system. That's the way it is, nothing outside the inside, the inside is also outside, etc. The Unabomber, a solitary man hiding a house in the wilderness, mailed explosives through U the US Postal Service. His wish for recognition or success led him to publish a manifesto in the New York Times. Theodore Kaczynski, a so-called lone wolf, had typical human needs, and they doomed him. His sister-in-law recognized his writing, his philosophy, and reported him. If he hadn't demanded publication, threatening to kill more people if the Times didn't publish it, he might never have been caught and jailed. Maybe he wanted to stop his murdering. Maybe not. Deluded, but horribly effective for a while. Thank you. <laughs> LIC Reading Series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Our theme music is by longtime LIC resident Pat Irwin. <laughs> <laughs>